On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus and welcome again, Dr. Joe Brewer. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Oh, this is, it's always delightful. And I always walk away a little bit smarter every time I talk to you. So I'm excited about this. So, but today we're going to talk about your new book, Unwinding Anxiety. Um, that also, you know, you have a corresponding app. And I will say everyone, if you're not familiar with Dr. Judd's work, go to drjudd.com, check out his app. The Unwinding Anxiety. My patients do very well with this. I just had to throw that in. Pay attention what we're talking about today. All right. So another extra plug here. Um, all right. So first of all, Tell us a little bit, if people aren't familiar, about yourself, and then why would you write a book about unwinding anxiety? Yes, I know it might sound a little strange. So I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I'm a neuroscientist. I specialize in you know, habit change. More recently, I've become more specialized in anxiety, and we can get into that. That wasn't mm -hmm. what I had planned to do. Mm -hmm. And one thing that, you know, one place to start maybe with you know, just what anxiety is, but also this relates to how I'd really been struggling with helping my own patients in my clinic with anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, there's mm -hmm. this term in medicine called the number needed to treat, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically how many people you need to treat before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. Mm -hmm. For gold standard medications for anxiety, that number is 5.15. So anybody can imagine you know, somebody walks into my clinic and I've got a basically a 20, 20% chance that mm. they're going to, you know, a month later or two months later, they're going to be feeling significantly better. Wow. You know, that's not, that's not very comforting. And I, as a psychiatrist, you know, it can be tough to be treating so many folks and not really seeing huge benefit in all of them. That's what I want is for all of my patients to get better, not just play the, the medication lottery as in terms of right. who's going to get that winning ticket. And that winning ticket often is dependent on genetics, you know, things like that. So we can't change our genes. <laughs> so, yeah. so I agree, though. I, I mean, I'm just thinking as a psychiatrist, that's all you're seeing is mental mm -hmm. health components. And then I yeah. would think I have diabetics. I can imagine if like only fifth of the time I prescribe medications or do something, only 20 percent of the chance they'll get somewhat better. I mean, that just really blows my mind. Wow. Yes. Yes. So this isn't a woe is Judd, you know, poor Judd not doing well as a psychiatrist, but it was, it was enough to, you know, enough of a pain point for me to really start to explore, you know, what's happening. What am I missing? Hmm. And at the time I was, you know, I was studying habits and helping people, you know, we'd done good work and you and I have talked about this before, you know, helping people quit smoking. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment with the you know, our, our app-based mindfulness training program, you know, the first study was in person, but then, you know, developed for the app. We'd done work with our Eat Right Now app, you know, 40% reduction in craving-related eating. So here, it, it was actually serendipity. Somebody in our eating program said, hey, can you develop a program for anxiety? And mm -hmm. I was thinking, well, I can prescribe medications for anxiety, <laughs> but what about a program? And this is where I had to go back to the basic definition of what anxiety was. Mm. And it really helped me. So, you know, certainly there are DSM, you know, there are these criteria in the medical literature about anxiety disorders. But if you look at anxiety itself, so the definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And I think that's really interesting because you can think of 
anxiety and worry in particular, worry can either be a noun where it's a feeling or it can also be a verb where it's doing something, it's a mental behavior. Mm. And when I was asked to start looking into developing a mindfulness training program for anxiety, I looked back and, you know, as a researcher, I wanted to look back in the literature to find the mechanisms to see what was actually driving anxiety. And what I found was this work, ironically, this work from the 80s. So back when, you know, the Stones were singing about Smother's Little Helper, you know, Benzos were all the rage, you know, remember that song? You know, she goes running off to the shelter of her mother's little helper and it helps her oh my God. You know, through oh. her day. And in the book too, you mentioned some really funny quotes. Anyway, you're, you're cracking me up here, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, you know, it was on the heels of the seventies when everybody was using benzodiazepines, which are now no longer recommended as first line treatment for anxiety. Uh, Prozac was discovered or invented mid eighties. And so people were heralding the miracle of Prozac. And nobody was paying attention to this guy, Thomas Borkovec, who was at Penn State studying anxiety and worry. And I saw this literature and my eyes popped out of my head because he was suggesting that anxiety can be driven through the mental behavior of worry. And I'd never thought about worry in that light before as this mental behavior that could actually feed back and drive anxiety. So, you know, just to, to think about this in terms of negative reinforcement Negative reinforcement works with a trigger of behavior and a result. So if the trigger is a negative emotion, the behavior could be worry. Mm. And that behavior, Borkovec and others have argued, does a couple of things. It could distract us from the worst feeling, feeling of anxiety or fear or whatever, or it could make us feel like we're in control because at least we're doing something, right? So imagine how many parents have teenage kids and their kids go out to party and their parent is anxious and worried all night until they hear the doorknob open and then they can go to sleep, right? My guess, let me ask you this, uh, as, as a parent, has your worry actually kept your children safe? Can you prove that your worrying has kept them safe? Um, well, no, and it's even worse because <laughs> now they're, a, they're adults and I have zero control and even more worry, but you know, I'm one of those, but it makes me feel better because I'm doing something. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. I'm bad. I actually have a cut from one of my children. It says my mother is, um, she does a better job than the FBI about doing research or something like that. It was like, oh yeah, because I will worry anyway, but that is my personality. So please help me, Dr. I have an app for that. <laughs> Which is an awesome app and I prescribe it regularly to patients. So, oh yes. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> So here, that's a great example of not, not I'm not saying your example, boy. Oh, I'm a good example. No, that's all good. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's an example of how worry can actually drive anxiety. And it doesn't, it only makes things worse, actually, because the more we worry, the more it pushes us over that event horizon into that black hole of anxiety. So worry then starts to feed back and trigger anxiety, which then triggers more worry, which triggers then more anxiety. Oh my goodness. So, so the, it's really interesting. I never thought about worry as a noun and worry as a verb. And then this, the habit, cause like when I first met you, that's how I was introduced to the concept of anxiety as a habit loop. And it really was quite mind blowing when you start thinking about patients and the way they're describing their anxiety and how it just kind of builds up. Like you'll hear patients like, they start with something and then it just builds, builds, builds. And then they literally lose, have physical 
symptoms and this, you know, just explosion of whatever emotions they have. It's really fascinating. And then they can't almost control it. They feel like they're, there's a victim. They're like, they're like, I have no control of this. And it literally becomes shut-ins because they, they're afraid to leave and do anything. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's devastating. So we understand. So the, the habit, anxiety is a habit driven by worry that feeds itself and again and again. So what are these triggers for these worries and anxieties? Like, so how do people understand, like, how do we start this understanding of the habit loop? Like what, how do they understand their own habit loop? I find it helpful to have help people just map out their own habit loop. So there can be a ton of different types of triggers, right? And the first step, although the least important step, honestly, is the trigger because triggers don't perpetuate the behavior. They just Mm. trigger it. Mm-hmm. So these can be thoughts, you know, I've had, I had a patient that I write about in my book who had full-blown panic disorder and it was driven. <laughs> I say driven, haha, because he was avoiding driving on the highway, right? And so he would have thoughts that would trigger him to avoid driving. Mm. And those trigger, those thoughts were triggering him not to drive. Uh, and then his reward would be that he wouldn't get panic attacks. And so mm-hmm. his brain said, you know, it's just not worth it to drive on the highway. So he would avoid driving on the highway. Oh, that is really fascinating. So where do you think about this in context of, so um, behavior is, because I've interviewed BJ Fogg and read his book and stuff, which is fascinating. So it's behavior always has to have a motivation and trigger cue, the ability to do it, I guess your thoughts thinking. And then also, um, well, the motivation, I guess, so it's motivation, ability, and prompt. So what about this motivation? So people don't want to worry. Does that almost like feed into it as well? They're like, I don't want to worry, but now they're worrying more about the worrying. Like, where does that come? Yes. I, I, and I have to go back and check with BJ about this to make sure I'm not misunderstanding what he's talking about. But habits, for example, are they motivated? <laughs> I don't know, but he or says any behavior. Habitual? It's basically, he says any behavior has to have three components at one time to occur, which is motivation, the ability to occur in a prompt. So I, oh, I guess, okay. So yeah. I think he's talking about reward. So more classically, mm-hmm. if you think, if you go back into the literature, this is described in positive and negative reinforcement terms mm-hmm. as okay. trigger behavior reward. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he's talking about reward in a different way, where if something's rewarding, it's going to motivate us to do it again. But from a scientific standpoint, people tend to talk about this in terms of how rewarding a behavior is. So I think yeah. that's in alignment with what he's talking about. He's just doing using different language. Yeah, because I was just trying to figure out in, because when I break down, I've been using his information, like for example, someone, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't want to, they want to break a habit or they're mm-hmm. wanting to do a habit. So we try to build in those three things. Well, motivation will wax and wane, willpower, their ability to do it, try to make it easier and then a prompt. So we put in their environment, a prompt to get them to do the behavior, which maybe it's sticking it in the routine or something. So mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, cause like he said, any behavior, any human behavior can be defined by these two things. So I was just trying to be curious on your take on that. What would be that motivating factor is of maybe it's the wanting to do something or be in control. Cause I'm thinking in my own mind, that's what I worry about. I was like, I just want them to be safe. So that's mm-hmm. my motivation. So I get it. So that's a off talk, but I was just really curious because I just think about these things and what I can also, how I can explain it just to my patients. So when we're looking at um, the anxiety also, 
we also, like you said, we get stuck in these cycles. Well, how do we get unstuck in these cycles? Mm -hmm. What is your so, steps? Yeah, I think of it as a three-step process, which actually evolved from me just observing over and over and over my patients, the folks in our programs, you know, in our research subjects. And it, you know, I don't know why three is the magic number, but it <laughs> is, you know, I love that song uh, from Schoolhouse Rocks Rocks. Do you ever hear that three? Yes. The magic number. So in this case, it's the magic number here as well. And, oh yes, it is. Sorry, that song is now stuck in my head. But the first step uh, is just mapping out a habit loop, right? And so yes. I'll, I'll use the example of my patient. So I sat down with him in my office and pulled out a piece of paper and we just mapped out trigger behavior result or reward from a brain perspective and you know, wrote down, okay, thoughts. You know, I think one of his thoughts was I'm in a speeding bullet. Behavior, avoid driving on the highway and then result, you know, don't get panic attacks. And so mm -hmm. I send him home with our Unwinding Anxiety app. And I said, just map out your habit loops over the next two weeks, okay? Now, that's the first step, that's step one. But interestingly, and I, I didn't mention this yet, this gentleman was also 180 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. And he had obstructive sleep apnea, he had hypertension, so he had high blood pressure and he had a fatty liver. I wasn't even gonna address the, the eating stuff yet because I just wanted to focus on his anxiety at full-blown panic disorder, full-blown generalized anxiety disorder. He mm -hmm. comes back two weeks later for his first follow-up visit. And the first thing he says to me is, oh doc, I lost 14 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I looked a little stunned because, you know, I was like, we didn't talk about this yet. We? we didn't talk about this and we hadn't. And he said, no, 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 it's okay. I was, I was mapping out my habit loops. Oh, wow. Anxiety was triggering me to stress eat. And I realized that the stress eating wasn't rewarding okay mm. so maybe this is the motivation piece that fog is talking about from a classical science perspective you know if if you equate motivation with willpower then i would be yeah. careful there because mm. there's not actually good neuroscience suggesting that willpower is a solid i, I would say desire maybe desire. okay so desire works because yeah. that that uh, that fits with the reward-based learning language so mm. And I'm, I'm being particular there because we often think, well, to change a behavior, you just need to change the behavior, just focus there, you know, use your willpower, grit, whatever. Right. But that's not what actually drives future behavior. What drives future behavior is how rewarding it is. Mm -hmm. So for example, my patient, he realized that eating in response to anxiety wasn't rewarding. And so mm -hmm. that reward value dropped in his brain and he stopped doing it. He lost 14 pounds. He went on to lose over hundred pounds. And, you know, yeah. And he said it was effortless because he was tapping into his brain's natural reward processes. So that's step two. I think of it as, you know, how rewarding is this? So for example, you know, somebody is smoking a cigarette. I have them pay attention when they smoke. If somebody is overeating, I have them pay attention when they overeat. And in fact, my lab's done studies on this. As people really truly pay attention, that reward value drops below zero within 10 to 15 times of somebody using, we have this embedded craving tool in our Eat Right Now app so that we can actually measure this. 10 to 15 times that reward value drops below zero, below the not eating behavior. And with anxiety, this can be especially straightforward because people realize pretty quickly that worry doesn't feel very good in their body. Hmm. And they can also realize they can ask simple questions like, is this actually helping me? <laughs> is this keeping my family safe? Right. The short answer, as you highlighted, no, it's not. 
right. they have to see it and they have to see the direct results of how that worry is actually making them more worried to be able to become disenchanted with it. That's really the second step. So I go into that in detail in the book because that's a really hard piece for people to actualize because their brains don't want to see it. You know, they don't right. like change. They, their brains don't like change. They don't, they don't want to see that this might not be helping them. So how does someone do that then? How does someone become disenchanted with the worry? And because, I mean, people, I almost think there are certain personality traits that some people have, or maybe their upbringing or there was some experience they had that they worry about things. So how does, what is the next step? What can we do to make that happen? So the next step, well, and actually I'll, I'll mention something here. This is not to say, uh, so I totally agree with you. Some people genetically are predisposed to just to have more anxiety than others. Some people learn worrying from their parents. Uh, the, this aspect of experience can, you know, all, so we can't change our genes, but we can change how we interact with our genes. And so we, and we can't change the past. So if we learned worrying from our parents, we can't go and blame our parents and do whatever, you know, because we can't change the past, but we can change the present, which will then influence the future, mm. right? So this is where the third step comes in, mm. which I think of as providing this BBO, the bigger, better offer. Mm -hmm. And I like to think of it as coming in two main flavors, right? So there are probably 31 flavors of, you know, these bigger, better offers. And there are some that can be more helpful than not, but not as helpful as others. So for example, distraction, you know, some people will go and scroll on social media if they're anxious or they're procrastinating or whatever. That tends to just perpetuate other habits and doesn't get the work done. So I'm not gonna focus on those, but what I'll focus on really is things that are intrinsic that mm. don't become habituated where we don't need more of them. And they themselves can serve as the bigger, better offer. So I think of them as these two main flavors are kindness and curiosity. Hmm. So we can actually use curiosity in the second step and ask simple questions like, what am I getting from this? Truly being curious, right? Mm -hmm. Like, huh, is worrying really helping to solve this problem? Not hmm. saying, oh, you know, not in a clenched way, but really truly being curious, like, huh, what am I getting from this, right? Mm -hmm. In that moment, we're not only seeing that the worrying is unrewarding, but we're also starting to tap into the better feeling feeling of curiosity because curiosity feels better than anxiety. My lab actually had to do a study on this, but I think for anybody, <laughs> you know, it's a no brainer, but you know, mm -hmm. you have to, you have to show the science to, to say that, you know, it's actually true. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we did a several hundred person study to show that surprise people prefer being curious over worrying. Mm. There, so curiosity helps open us to our own experience and also opens us to learning. So it actually helps fulfill that survival mechanism of getting information so we can think and plan for the future. So not only does it keep our thinking part of the brain online, but it helps it stay online and gather information so it can process that information accurately. Yeah. So that's one bucket or one flavor. The other flavor is kindness, right? Mm. Uh, anxiety tends to feel closed, right? Curiosity tends to feel open. Those are polar opposites. You can't feel closed and open at the same time. So you can kind of hack the system by hacking into something that feels open. And curiosity is one of those. Another is kindness, right? Mm -hmm. Kindness doesn't make us feel closed or closed off. It helps us feel open and connected. 
So whether it's just feeling the kindness of others, being kind to others, or being kind to ourselves. I write about this a bit in my book because there are a lot of times that people have self-judgmental habit loops, right? So they'll judge themselves. They'll say, oh, what's wrong with me? Or why am I overweight? Or, you know, all this. And there we can practice self-kindness and practice. And so I put, put some practices in the book for people to actually step out of those habit loops. But basically the two main flavors are, are curiosity and kindness. So, and so I was just curious when this kind of, I love curiosity, by the way, I, I, I love that because we've had this conversation about curiosity as a superpower. And I've used those exact words with patients and especially when they have other family members, like kids who want to build in healthier habits mm-hmm. or discuss their habits. So like use their natural curiosity. That's your superpower and help them understand what's going on and become interested. And, and it was really been really fun to work with people that way. But what about when we're using this curiosity? So let's say that we're looking at our own behavior, we're becoming the, we'll talk about the mindfulness maybe aspect of this a little bit. When we're asking our questions, as I do know a lot of patients, because I work with a lot of patients who are really trying to overcome chronic disease and there's a lot of unhealthy habits involved. And of course, anxiety, they worry about their health. They worry about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So when we ask them to start being curious and start looking inward and looking at what's going on and looking at the behavior and, you know, we're coming from a loving perspective, like, can you use curiosity ask yourself these questions. And I always preface it with in a non-judgmental way, but how do we stop that? Cause I, I know where people do tend to go. They're like, they start asking the questions and then they just start answering it in a very unhealthy, unkind way. Is there anything that you found to help people stay on the right path of being non-judgmental with curiosity and make it an enjoyable experience? One thing that I find is helpful is for people to really stay out of their heads because often we think, oh, if I'm curious, I'm going to solve a problem. This isn't about solving any problems per se, because we can't solve problems when we're stuck, right? So we can't just force ourselves to solve the problem. What we can do is helping ourselves open to the question so that we can truly be curious. We can truly take information in and be most likely to solve that problem. So one thing I have people do is really drop into their embodied experience, right? So what, you know, not why is this happening, but what is happening, Mm. you know, especially not the, um, you know, why did this happen to me? (laughs) They're all whole string of habit loops around the why habit loop. And that that's just a rabbit hole, a black hole. You can't fix, you know, you can't fix or change the past. You can only work with the present moment. So this is really about not why, but what, what is Mm. happening or what do I need right now? Right. And making, you know, or even asking, am I really in danger? Because that's what our survival brain is trying to determine. Oh, are you in a dangerous situation? So you need to get out of here. Mm. So we can ask ourselves, oh, is is this truly dangerous right now? Mm. And of course, if it's dangerous, we can act accordingly because we're now paying attention, right? That's Mm. what the system is set up for. But if it's not dangerous, we can then ask ourselves, huh, what does this feel like in my body? Or we can even check in with our eyes, you know, are my eyes narrowed because they tend to be narrowed when we're frustrated or angry or anxious. And we can even just open them and go, oh, because that release, it kind of brings in the association that our body is used to when we're, you know, when we're in wide eyed wonder, there's a a reason that phrase is there because we're taking in new information. So even just Mm. opening our eyes really wide 
oh, what am I feeling right now? Oh, is there truly a dangerous situation right now? That can help awaken, let's say, our curiosity in that moment. Hmm. So it reminds me of like this, the Wonder Woman pose, and there, there was some research. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Yeah, Maybe. it was not replicated, so it wasn't. <laughs> no. Oh man! Yeah, I okay. know. I loved it too. Made but a lot I, of sense. Regardless, anyway, <laughs> there was this unreplicatable size, but basically, it was you know the posing and having some hormonal changes. But apparently, the hormonal changes were not replicated, which is unsad. Yeah, the, but the um, power <laughs> poses, I mean, it's great. You know, it, literally yeah. those poses were about opening ourselves up. Yes. So it's not yes. to say that we shouldn't do that. It's just to say not to take a ton of stock in all the conclusions that they drew. But it's almost like a, but you could almost do a step, like if someone's feeling a bit closed and stuck, they're like, open the eyes and just, you know, start there and start building into, filling into the body and what's going on. So that kind of brings us to, the understanding of what mindfulness is. And mm. I know we've talked a lot about this because I certainly came into the phrase of mindfulness with a very misunderstood what it is exactly. I didn't truly understand the context and the power of it, but now it's like really cool. Can you tell us what mindfulness is and why is that so important? We've kind of been talking around it, but just the really, the description and go sure. from there. And we can, I think of mindfulness as a concept. And so to get to the brass tacks or the concrete aspects of it, we can think of it as awareness and curiosity. And they're two sides of the same coin. So we could be aware of something and we could be judging it, right? That's not mindfulness. Or we could be aware of it and we could be truly curious, which helps us kind of release all of our preconceived notions or our concerns or our fears or our worries about what's actually happening. And then truly see what is actually happening in that moment. Mm. So that's all I think of as all, or I should say, it, that's the simple idea around mindfulness. And it's really bringing these ideas into fruition in our actual experience that helps us change everything from you know bad habits of smoking and overeating to helping us truly work with, you know, with, work with longstanding or deep-seated anxiety frustration, worry, things like that. Hmm. Okay. So when someone is looking at your book and should they get the app as well, or what would you prescribe for someone who's <laughs> looking for relief from anxiety? And I can share, you know, just my own patient experiences in a bit, but what would you say would be the best way or how should someone approach this and where should they go? Cause there's so many there's so many interesting things in the book that we could go down into. But what would you say is the, the proper way like to do this or, or a way? Here I would, and I'm guessing you did the same thing. I would take a personalized medicine approach. So I would try to really truly understand how my patient learns the best or the most. Mm. And so if somebody's a book learner, then I would say read the book. If somebody wants to have something that is a little more interactive and they're more of a visual learner, then mm -hmm. I would say use the app. The, the two can complement each other. And I've certainly had people uh, use the app. And also we had this early, some folks got to read the book early and they found that the book actually augments their training through the app, which was actually a little surprising to me, but I think now it makes more sense because it really explains the science more. It gives some concrete examples from my patients and it brings in a lot more like I use 
you know, worry habit loops, uh, anxiety, or I should say, um, procrastination habit loops, mm. uh, the why habit loop, all these things go into more detail, which the app doesn't have. But if somebody likes, you know, the, the experiential component, uh, if they use the app, they can actually join a live weekly group that I run, you know, with a, with a psychologist, so they can actually get some live interaction. So I'd say use the app, but if somebody's a book learner, use the book, or you, you could explore either of them. I know folks can read a couple of pages of a book on Amazon and they can, there's like four or five free days in the app. So I'd say, you know, try, try it out see what works best for you. Yeah, so I, I really like this from the this perspective of if you're a physician or if you're a friend or family member and you want to, you know, you see someone suffering from anxiety, there's two ways I've been from my experience and after, you know, knowing you, looking, knowing the app, looking the book, um, I think there's some really interesting things here. So I have people who grab hold of the app and they just take off, right? There's not a it's, you know, I'm always checking in and then they just, they have some amazing experiences. And then I have some that, that start the app and they struggle to stay with it. But what I like about the book is you're right, that augmentation of understanding and then like, oh, but now I'll have a prompt to augment this behavior and where I want to go. So I really think they, I think some people don't take the time to understand the value of the app, which is really powerful, but this almost will help precondition them or prime them to be ready to look at the app. So if, I would caution someone, if you're not even found the app helpful to read the book and then go back to the app, because I think that will be very beneficial, um, at least in my brain. Um, but could you talk a little bit about what it means? Um, you, you mentioned specifically her mindfulness personality types, which was really cool, because I totally see where it depends on the situation, because I could be one, two, or three. So what, what would you, rec what is that exactly? What do you mean by that? <laughs> so this is based on some work that colleagues and I did a couple of years ago where we were really exploring this personalized medicine approach. And it turns out that there's a fifth century commentary written about the Buddhist teachings called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. And I actually love the beginning of that. Uh, there's a, it, it starts basically the introduction says tangled in a tangle of tangles <laughs> right that's that's what we're all looped in but i, I just right. love that tangled in a tangle of tangles but they described in there a process to start to basically diagnose basically three different person i call them personality types mm -hmm. you can think of it as, as psychological phenotypes where yeah. some people you can think of it uh, roughly aligning with the fight, flight, freeze, or the, um, you know, that type of thing where some people are more likely to approach pleasant things. Some people are more likely to run away from unpleasant things. And some people are more likely to kind of space out and go with the flow as a, as their psychological interaction with the world, so to speak. And so mm -hmm. broadly speaking, and it's not that one is one or the other, it's often people have a combination of these just beginning to get a sense for what somebody's uh, mindfulness personality type is can help them start to see their own habitual reactions to the world mm -hmm. in a much uh, clearer way and in all the different and subtle ways that they interact with the world which can be as subtle as the types of clothes they like to wear how they walk the types of food that they prefer over others these are all described in this fifth century commentary which is fascinating you know that like some people like sweet food some people like spicy food you know and they are suggesting that you can actually determine these, these personalities based on that. So we 
you know, we did a study, of course, to see if this was true in modern day and develop this personality questionnaire that only is about 13 questions. And so in the book, somebody can go and take the quiz and get a sense for their predominant type. And then they can use that as a way to start identifying their own habitual reactions in the world, whether it's interacting with others, whether it's how they approach ideas, you know, everything from cleaning their room to cooking food, to wearing their clothes, to interacting with others. So I found it helpful for myself personally. And this is a way that people can start to not only start to see and map out their habit loops more, but then also start to bring in particular practices that can help them uh, even augment, you know, like kind of bring in where they might have, I, I don't like to use the word deficits, but might augment some of the pieces that they might not naturally be more inclined to do. Just sharpening their tools in their toolbox, basically. So when you say these personalities, so can you give us a, a more specific example, like maybe one of the personality types, like I know there's like the avoidance or maybe someone who seeks out certain things, like what type of practices or what tools would you say they're sharpening or bringing in to help with them? What exactly does that mean? So for folks, for example, that are more of the approach, we call them the faithful type, or this is more in line with the, um, the you know, the, the language used previously, they more, they're more likely to, um, if somebody's learning a mindfulness practice, for example, they're more likely to gravitate to practices like loving kindness, like kindness and mm. you know, generosity, because they feel good. So that's a great way for them to kind of get started with these practices so they can immediately tap into the, the rewards that come with them. Mm. And at the same time, they can be on the lookout for where they get stuck, you know, where they don't want to um, approach things that are unpleasant, for mm. example. And so they can look out for those and then use practices to do that more specifically. Gotcha. Another example would be the people that tend to be more avoidant. They're good at judging the world, but they're, they might not necessarily be as habitually good at being kind to themselves or others. So there they can practice kindness practices, for example. So those are, those are two concrete examples. Exactly, I love that. It makes a lot of sense. So now, as far as what is your hope and vision for the book? What would you like it like, where would you like to see it be employed? What do you hope people get from it? Like, what is your desire and dream? Why would you, why would you write this book and put it out in the world? Well, concretely, I think, <laughs> you know, my first book I wrote more from a theoretical standpoint. So I, I highlighted all the neuroscience and all that work. And folks were asking, uh, and there's a, I, I actually dedicate this book to uh, an Amazon addict who, who gave me a, a particular review that suggested on my first book that suggested that I hadn't been as pragmatic or, or step-by-step giving, giving like step-by-step -step tools to practice mm. with. So this book is largely written out of one, this whole epiphany around anxiety and habits, which I hadn't even realized before. And two, around being much more pragmatic with folks. So one, I would see clinicians or therapists or coaches or whatever, just reading this to help them understand their clients so that they can understand the minds of their clients, they can empathize, they can then help them create concrete tools to help. Mm -hmm. And then for anybody that struggles with anxiety, worry, procrastination, or basically any other habit. So mm -hmm. this uses anxiety as a, as a kind of a cornerstone, but it really talks about how to change any habit. So mm -hmm. anybody that's struggling with a habit, especially around anxiety or worry, 
that here's a pragmatic tool for them. And I, that's what I love about that too, is because it is outside of, you can use it outside of immune anxiety, but even still, for example, from the physician perspective, if you have patients who are coming to you seeking help because of whatever, diabetes, high blood pressure, you name it, um, what's going to be interesting is we know they're worrying about it, right? We know it's disrupting their sleep. We know it's disrupting their relationships. So there's so much here that you can think about this as almost an anxiety about whatever it is they're dealing with and help them see that and bring these tools in to help them get well. I mean, really, it's really exciting. As you know, huge fan. So I, these, these, these things I love, I love it. It just changes my language, how I speak to people and to patients. And then how I, I'm honestly thinking about my own, you know, neurotic motherly behaviors um, that my children have learned to, uh, they avoid. And this is one thing that also changes the behavior of others interacting with you, right? Because they may not say things that they know will trigger worry, or they may avoid telling you that they've done something until they've already done it. It's like, then you don't have to this is what I've discovered has been my reward is just not knowing is I just don't tell you. So I just see there's so many benefits in so many uh, ways. Um, did, have you seen any of that in your own practice with patients and how you are thinking about, I know you said understanding, but in your own personal experience, what's that been, it must've been rewarding. It's been tremendously rewarding. I think this is what kind of prompted the book. I, th I think I hadn't really planned to write it, but it seemed like I actually went on a silent meditation retreat and it, and it just kind of came out because it was ready to be written because there was enough there, you know, mm -hmm. where I'd, I'd lived it. I'd, and, and our research studies were actually uh, solid at that point. So we'd done... Mm -hmm study with anxious physicians, we got 57% <laughs> reduction in, in generalized anxiety disorder, seven symptoms. Uh, we did a randomized control trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder, and we got a 67% reduction. And there we could actually calculate that number needed to treat that you and I talked about at the beginning. Yeah. So medications 5.15 with the unwinding anxiety program, 1.6. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So if if that ad ha, if that app had a mic, that would be a mic drop moment for, that, <laughs> for, for the unwinding anxiety app. It's like it's well. Any other it, questions? Exactly, <laughs> because honestly, I didn't. You know, I I was tapping into the power of your research and understanding when, which I told you, I think it was like two or three years ago, the first time we connected, and I was sharing this with patients. I mean, it must have been, right? It's been more, it's been a while. Anyway, I remember texting you because I had this young person, uh, early twenties, having severe panic attacks out of nowhere. Like he didn't have a history of anxiety, but he was just worrying constantly. He made an appointment and I said, listen, this is your homework. I took the motherly, you have to do this approach. <laughs> Teacher says, you have to do this app because I see someone in the burgeoning of anxiety. So it's not this ingrained serious type. I'm like, this could be a really prime person to have this happen. It's like, you have to do this app. It's like, if you do anything else, you have to do the app. Here's the medication. Cause we, cause he really wanted medication. He was worried about not, he was worried about, you know, the, the reason. And what happened was he came back in 30 days. Cause you know, it's a typical follow-up point four to six weeks after you start medication and such. And I asked him how he's doing. He goes, Dr. Marbus, I didn't start the medication but I will tell you what, I'm fine now. That app has completely changed my life. And I was just like, that is so cool. <laughs> so I was like, this, it just blew my mind. And honestly, those type of experiences is just, 
I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just really cool to, to be able to give someone the power to understand they're not a victim mm. of these feelings and thoughts. And um, we are much more in, able to control that and change our destiny, you know, than we really thought before. So thank you for all your work in your book and everything else. So is there any final advice or anything else you'd like to say to us or the audience? I think I would just remind everyone, you know, kindness and curiosity, you know, mm. rinse and repeat. <laughs> rinse and repeat. Kindness and curiosity, rinse and repeat. Wow. That's okay. That's going on a mug. Kindness <laughs> and curiosity, rinse and repeat. Absolutely. Wow. That's phenomenal. Did you just make that up or have you been saying that? Right? No, I had, that's the first time I thought of that, but it makes sense. Kindness and curiosity. That's, that's brilliant. It really does make complete sense. So thank you so much for everything you're doing and enjoy your, your time uh, away and writing and, and in just everything you're doing. We really appreciate your work. Um, and everyone tell us where we can connect with you. I'm sorry. I should ask that. Where should we connect with you? How do you like to interact with folks? Where, where should, where can they go? The easiest Clearinghouse, let's say, is my website, drjud.com, drjud.com. So they can get information about the book. They can learn about the apps. We've got a bunch of free resources. If they're healthcare providers, we have a free CME course that they can take. Bunch of things. You know, I get the reward of being able to give information to people and try to make it clear and concise, uh, you know, bringing the science forward. Uh, so that's a place they can go. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Judd Brewer and YouTube, Insta- YouTube, uh, Dr. Judd. And I think Instagram, Dr. Judd, DR period, J-U-D. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. I, I would really say people should check out your um, website because you have great articles there. That's where I first on the curiosity <laughs> superpower article, which like, uh, this could be an entire podcast, which it did turn into one. And, you know, and the course is really, really helpful because it helps people like myself who are outside of the, what you're training in your research to, to come into it and get a pretty good overview of how to use this in their own life, but also with patients and others. So I would encourage you guys to definitely check out the, the course. It's very consumable, easy to do. You'll learn a ton and it'll make make you curious to learn more. And then you need to go read the books and do the apps and do everything else. So anyway, that is my prescription for my fellow physicians. But thank you, Dr. Brewer, for everything you do. And again, for this book, I can't wait to see it in many, many hands. I'll be prescribing it. And uh, we're excited to, uh, to see it be on the best sellers list. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you could, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating on whatever platform that you're listening to this podcast. We really appreciate the feedback. In addition to this, I did want to let you know that we actually do video recordings of all of our interviews. And if you'd rather watch them, you can check out our YouTube channel at Healthy Human Revolution. There we also have other resources for you. One in particular I'm really excited about is called The Doctor's Inn. That's where I actually answer questions from the audience and do tons of topics like cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and just things to help you stay well. So check it out and also don't forget the HealthyHumanRevolution.com website where you have all the resources you need to actually start and sustain a healthy whole food plant-based diet.